This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to A Conversation with History. I'm Harry Chrysler of the Institute of International Studies. Our guest today is George Packer, who is a staff writer for The New Yorker, the author of many books, most recently The Unwinding, which won the National Book Award for Nonfiction. He is on the Berkeley campus as the 2017 Jefferson Lecturer. George, welcome back to our program. Good to be with you again, Harry. Last time you were here, we uh, talked about the unwinding. And uh, I want to ask you uh, what you learned from doing that research and writing that book about where America was. That book has been cited as a primer on Trump's, America Trump's victory. I, I think I have to reject that a little. I didn't imagine Donald Trump's presidency. Uh, I believed the polls last year. I thought he would win because the poll, I I thought Hillary would win because the polls said she would. But the book did survey a landscape that was preparing the way for Trump. So Trumpism, the feelings, the impulses that we call populism that um, fueled the support that drove him you know, to victory in the Republican primary, victory in the general election, was all there in the places I was reporting on five, six, seven years earlier. So I wasn't, I was, I guess, shocked but not surprised by his victory uh, because that work had prepared me for something like that. I just didn't think we were quite that far gone. And, and what were the, some of the things that you found? I mean, you were... Uh, to going to different parts of the country, talking to different uh, people of different social class, and uh, there were some common themes, I mean, as people responded to the 2008 crash. Yeah, that was the context for my reporting, was the, the financial crisis and the Great Recession, the early Obama years. I was in western North Carolina, rural tobacco and textile area. I was in ex-urban Tampa Bay, where the housing bust was most dramatic, and there were all these new subdivisions that were practically deserted. Uh, I was in Youngstown, Ohio, which is a classic Rust Belt city. And <clears throat> it, it kind of didn't matter whether I was talking to a Democrat or a Republican, to uh, someone in a city or a small town, to someone who was black or white. There was a common sense of the game that they play being rigged in favor of people who had the connections, who were in the right networks, who had power and money, um, of the middle class disappearing, uh, of their children's chances being poor, um, and of this globalization kind of sweeping away the life that they knew, whether it was the factory or the shops in the small town Main Street or or what. So uh, there was just a general feeling of um, anxiety and suspicion, suspicion of each other too. I kept running into people who thought something, someone was scamming them or something was a scam. And also the, <clears throat> the way they got information 
was no longer through one of three or four respected establishment news sources. It was their own tailored uh, information world that they could choose. So it was either Fox or MSNBC or their favorite websites. Um, Twitter had not yet become quite the deafening uh, echo chamber it is now, but uh, Facebook was beginning to become a major source of, of news. So I would say that if, if you want to look at three factors in the rise of Trump, they were all there. One was um, economic stagnation and a sense of falling behind and, and growing inequality that's been true for decades. Um, the change in the color and culture of towns that had not had immigration before, that were beginning to feel the effects of several decades of uh, open you know, immigration policies. And three, social media and new media that made it possible for people to um, get around the established voices and instead to hear more radical voices and to choose whether or not to believe them. And often they did because the radical voices spoke more directly to them. And, and there was a sense in your book of kind of the general collapse of institutions that might support people. And when you're talking about the democratic institutions, a real lack of trust. Yes. Certainly the federal government felt like a um, dysfunctional and parasitic uh, and far-off uh, thing that had nothing to do with them in any sort of uh, supportive way. Um, and even, to some extent, state government. But also think about churches. That even though I was in very religious parts of the country, the church didn't play the kind of cohesive role in the lives of people I was with. And these are very anecdotal and idiosyncratic stories. I wasn't looking for statistical representation. There were really no unions to speak of. Um, the woman I wrote about in Youngstown had been in a union when she worked on an assembly line, but her job had gone off to Mexico, and the union had, um, had, had dissolved with the end of that factory. And um, civic groups were not in their lives. And corporations were just <clears throat> um, giant uh, bodies that used their labor when they needed it and offered them no security in return. And there was a family in Tampa whose husband was always working odd hours at the Target, the local Target stock room, but they would call him when they needed him, and sometimes he had too few hours in a week to support his family. So it seemed to all be, you know, at the convenience of the, of the corporation. These are the institutions that, uh, in this, the great post-war boom, were the heart of the, of the middle class, the institutions that were like the the foundation on which a middle-class life could be built. They weren't there. And then the media, the last one, um, had become kind of a weapon more than a source of stability, a weapon in the political wars that Americans are now all engaged in. Your, your intellectual <clears throat> odyssey is one coming from a, 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 a very liberal background, maybe at times... Uh, a radical background in terms of your your own experiences were did were the people you talking to did they have a sense 
of the class that they belong to, the import, the traditional importance of of unions, the what had been the bread and butter of liberal radical constituencies in the past. For the woman in Youngstown, Tammy Thomas, um, the union was a fact of life, and it was you know, like the local school. It was just part of the fabric of her life, but it wasn't in her corner. It didn't fight for her in her her view. And when the job started to go and then when the buyout started to happen and when the factory closed, the union was helpless and it didn't put up much of a fight at all. This family in Tampa, it was interesting. One night uh, we were talking and the husband said he had just seen a documentary on the History Channel about a strike in West Virginia in the 20s, a famous uh, violent coal miners strike who at a place that's famous, but I can't remember the name, unfortunately. And he was telling me that at Target, they showed them the employees' videos, propaganda videos, about why unions were bad for them and why if there was ever a vote for a union, they should vote against it. And it wasn't as though he felt, how, how dare the company try to cheat me out of my right to have, uh, to be organized. What he said was, I, I watched that documentary. I couldn't figure out what was so bad about them. It's like it was some distant thing that he knew existed once in the past, decades ago, and mm-hmm. had stopped existing and was now mm-hmm. part of the History Channel. But it seemed like not such a bad thing. So why was Target telling him it was such a bad thing? So that made me sad because it, it showed how far away that tradition had gotten from a true working class uh, American in Tampa. Uh, the, the tra- Which was a union town, by the way. The, the transition from the time of your research writing uh, to the emergence of the era of Trump has been one in which, uh, and you point this out in your October 2016 uh, article in the New Yorker on the campaign, one in which <clears throat> identity politics emerged. I guess the question I have, was that apparent at the time of your writing or, or, or uh, when, when does this uh, transition become so powerful that yeah. it's really an important feature of the campaign? I think identity politics is always with us um, and a, a self-conscious white identity politics, not just white domination, but white identity politics to me, first emerged in the candidacy of Sarah Palin when she flaunted kind of small-town white culture, white boots, white music, redneck woman was the theme song of her campaign. It was in-your-face identity politics, and her crowds were entirely white, which isn't always true, even at a Republican political event. That was when I first noticed this thing that had emerged which seemed defensive and resentful and like um, about kind of demanding our rights, which is not, in general, white politics is simply the dominant politics. It's not self-conscious in that way, but it seemed to be taking on some of the forms of non-white identity politics when she came along. But then it got submerged for a while. 
Good old-fashioned racism was there in many places I was writing about, especially in North Carolina, where Obama was deeply unpopular with most people, although not with the, the guy I was writing about, Dean Price, who sort of revered and was obsessed with Obama. But So it was clear that o- Obama, as the first black president, was an affront to a lot of people I met in the small towns of Western North Carolina, Southern Virginia, Martinsville area. Um, I remember in the midterm elections of 2010, being at a polling place in Martinsville, and an older white woman uh, whose f- husband had just recently died, just spitting angry at Obama for being in the Oval Office and for somehow running down the presidency and not speaking right, not dressing right, and all these things that I found just mind-boggling. What are you talking about? She thought, you know, this man is somehow um, desecrating the presidency. I mean, I wonder how she feels about the guy who's desecrating the presidency right now. That was there, but the reaction to Obama on the left and among minorities took a few more years. And that came after my book was published the following year, 2014, with Ferguson and Black Lives Matter and the other incidents of police brutality. And it changed the atmosphere dramatically. The last two years of Obama's presidency were characterized, the dominant political event in the country was the return of identity politics uh, on the left. And that's still with us today. And it's now, you know, I think at even more intense level because Trump is producing a reaction. Uh, Before we talk about identity politics, I do want to have you uh, repeat the phrase you have about uh, Sarah Palin's relation to Trump. Do you Uh recall (laughs) a beautiful phrase? You call her the... John the Baptist. uh, For Trump. She she was the the one who went before mm-hmm. and was a harbinger of what was to come. And she was one of his first supporters. They, you know, she was poor and he was rich, but they were breathing the same noxious air of celebrity worship and kind of lowering of standards, celebrating the lowering of standards. I was sitting in a diner in a little town in southeastern Ohio In the fall of 2008, she had just been nominated vice president. And these women were saying to me, we love her. Mm -hmm. I said, why? They said, she would fit right in here. She's just like us. And that, too, was kind of an epiphany for me. You mean what you want is you in the highest office, not someone with qualifications, Mm -hmm. experience, who speaks in a slightly different way and who knows their way around foreign capitals, et cetera. You want you. That was um, a sign of utter uh, cynicism toward the political class, contempt for expertise, um, and populism. That's what populism sounded like, and I, that was when I really began to hear it with, Sarah, with John the Baptist, Sarah Palin. One of the themes in your <coughs> earlier works is this coming to terms with your observations that reason was being displaced, basically, as part of the discourse, basically. And we're moving, uh, not, not, you, you, this is an observation on your point that, that 
rational discussion was leaving the public space. Uh, and you're, you, what you just described is a, is a sense of there's a, an emotional reaction to her. It, yeah. It's not it's not thought out. It's not the yeah. the, the result of the policies that Sarah Palin is proposing. You know, I think it, we have to be careful not to imagine a past that was better than it was. I think politics is almost always dominated mm-hmm. by people's emotions. Choices of leader are dominated by how you feel about someone, which might be, you know, even pre-verbal or non-verbal. Um, but <clears throat> in the debates that I grew up watching for president, uh, th- the policies were the kind of the heart of what they were arguing about. They, what you might remember is there you go again or where's the beef, but that had to do with, you know, what you're going to do to Medicare or Social Security. You're talking about an earlier period, not in, in the recent period. I'm talking about like the 70s, the 80s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, do candidates even approach a debate thinking, I've got to win the policy debate? Or do they think, I've got to appear to be like this kind of person in order to connect <clears throat> with a segment of the population that wants that kind of person? Um, I think Trump's campaign, although he had slogans and even kind of half-baked policy ideas that appealed to people, what really provided the, the energy was the character, the kind of language he used. This is not new. I don't want to say that in the past we've all been Oxford Debate Union citizens who just decided you scored more points than you. Of course not. But it feels like this has now displaced any, almost anything else. This is this is where politics has gotten. That's also populism, because it it means establishing a direct connection between the leader and the people, which Trump consciously did. I am your voice. I alone can fix it. That was his way of saying, you know, I, I I'm channeling my followers, and so they identify with him personally, and they wear the same hat. And that makes it very difficult to persuade people of things because it's a tribalism. It's a tribal identity. An important piece of your unwinding uh, book was a whole section on the celebrity culture. And although Trump isn't one of the figures you identify, he almost was. Yeah. Damn it! <laughs> I thought about. I thought he's too obvious. Why? Yeah. If I put him yeah. in, people will just say, "Oh, I think of course Trump is in there." Well, that 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 was because you lived in New York and were so used to him, yeah. basically. Yeah. But but it, it, in other words, when you think about that section of your book, you you and then you look at Trump. Oh yeah. This is, I mean, so so there there is this element of him that you capture in the profiles where you seem to be saying that leaders are are, are people we admire because of the great life they live. We they live it in in our stead. Yes, we don't aspire to being where they are. That's for an age of upward mobility. Mm. They are. Mm. They represent us. They speak for us. And I saw that. In um, sort of in Sam Walton's story, which is the story of a small town 
you know, guy from uh, Missouri <clears throat> who becomes a, you know, the world's richest man. And in some ways, they don't have to be because he's, you know, he's like them. He's a, a, a figure that you know, they can identify with. Jay-Z... I had all these celebrity profiles, so uh, from different sec- sectors of the of of our society, like from politics, from entertainment, from business, finance, government. Jay Z at a concert that I went to, so that I had some feel for him, um, was saying to his fans, you know, I am the new Jackie Robinson. I'm breaking all the barriers. I'm a part owner of the Brooklyn Nets. We're in the Barclays Arena, which I'm a part owner of. I am you in this place. I'm at the table for you. And the fans would flash his corporate logo at back at him to say, yes, we follow you. We have your symbol. And that seemed like a new way f- to relate to celebrities. Like, when I was growing up, celebrities were, yeah, sports heroes could could draw a great deal of admiration, but they were kind of like a diversion. Uh, Liz Taylor and Richard Burton um, are at it again. But now they're like a, a brand that you associate with, and it's a way of feeling as if you have a place in the sun when you know you won't because the the doors don't open for you anymore. And I, I think of it as a kind of malign symptom of, of loss of faith in our own ability to govern ourselves. Instead, we hand it off to these, these gods. Uh, in the New Yorker article, you make an important distinction going back to this problem of identity and the working class in which what emerged for the first time either during the campaign or before it was the notion of a white working class. So uh, identity politics was uh, combined with uh, traditional notions of thinking (laughs) about society in terms of class. Talk about that. There's always been a very clearly identified white working class, and it's had different names. You know, Blue Collar was its name you know, 50, you know, 70 years ago. Um, tradesman, working man in the 19th century. Um, it's now a kind of a, a political science category because it behaves in a particular way that is distinct <clears throat> from, uh, from other groups of whites. It gave Donald Trump his victory. I mean, it was overwhelmingly the force that brought him to office. He won every category of white. He won every category of white, but his, his vote among working class whites, which I think the political scientists define as non-college degree, was overwhelming. In some areas, it was like 75%, which was not true <clears throat> for Mitt Romney. In fact... Obama won some of those votes in 2008 and 2012. So something shifted. And I think it's this identification with Trump as their voice, as their tribune, not his policies, but his, his character, his ethos. And <clears throat> it's, a, I think, a probably inevitable response to two terms of a black president, which for some white Americans 
was a shock and an unwelcome shock and becoming a, a, another minority group among several rather than the dominant majority. As we become a more ethnically heterogeneous society with immigration and with demographic trends, um, whites who feel like the deck is stacked, increasingly stacked against them are going to see themselves as a group with a grievance. And that became Trump's group. So <clears throat> the white working class, which has always been a, a big category for political scientists, now is the, uh, you know, sort of the, the great mystery people are trying to solve. It's been moving in the Republican direction for three decades. You can just see at, at each point, Bill Clinton reversed it a bit, Obama reversed it a bit, but it's really been headed that way. <clears throat> probably, certainly in the South since the Civil Rights Act and in the rest of the country since the Reagan era, Reagan Democrats, um, those were working class whites. It's a huge part of the electorate. I think some progressives think it's kind of going to disappear. They're going to die off by suicide or opioid overdose or just old age. They're 40% of the electorate <clears throat> from what I understand. So it's kind of like staring you in the face. It's, it's, it's uh, something, even if you don't like its political behavior, you can't wish it away. Uh, your, your analysis and description, your descriptive analysis, uh, is, uh, looks at many factors <clears throat> in explaining where we are. But you've come under criticism from your friend Tanahishi Coates uh, in a piece in The Atlantic and I guess in his new book as both ignoring race and then, on the other hand, not seeing race as really the cause of everything uh, that has come to pass with Trump. So that Trump, you know, he calls him the first white president and that Obama's presidency made Trump inevitable, I think he's saying. Yeah, and I think the first white president is a brilliant insight. I think it, I agree with that. <clears throat> yeah, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but he criticized that piece that you mentioned, my piece uh, pre-election, for <clears throat> focusing so much attention on the white working class and why it had left the Democratic Party and gone to the Republicans and why it seemed to have been captured by Trump. And Coates thought, you're, you're just... Um, trying to, in some way, separate yourself and all whites from this class when, in fact, Trump got the support, the, the majority of votes from every category of whites, including educated whites. And so he, he really is the white president who represents the return of, um, after eight years of Obama, kind of a vengeful return of white supremacy to our, to our politics and uh, he thought I was evading that and maybe evading my own complicity in that. And, you know, it's hard to answer a charge of, you know, you're just avoiding the truth about yourself when uh, that truth is a truth that I, you know, it's sort of I was born with that truth. My answer is <clears throat> no one should ever underestimate race in America. And certainly Trump brought it to a new level of explicit and uh, broadly accepted vitriol. 
Um, although he was much more uh, concerned with immigrants and Muslims during his campaign rallies than he was with black Americans. The focus was more on those other groups. So to put it in black and white terms, I think, is a bit of a, um, a misread of where Trump, what, what particular kinds of hostility and bigotry he was stirring up. But certainly it also had to do with uh, our ancient racial uh, burden. And and yet, then you start thinking about the other things that got Trump where he was. How can we ignore the fact that Hillary Clinton was the first woman to come that close to the presidency and that the hatred for her it was so intense that it could not be explained by her email server alone? It had to be on a more primal level, and I think it had a lot to do with her being a powerful woman. So I think misogyny was right there in the mix. How can you ignore the fact that the areas where cultural resentment, racial resentment was strongest by polling numbers are the same areas where the sense of being under siege by forces of globalization and, and having your uh, the, the sort of the underpinnings of your community disappearing under your feet and your children uh, struggling and your neighbors uh, turning to either drugs or crime or government you know, benefits or all of them. How can you ignore that connection? They are obviously related. I don't want to have to sort it all out and say, well, it was 27% economics and 43% race and 30%. Mis- it, to me, it, it they reinforce each other. And I don't think of race in our politics as a fixed, immutable force. It can change depending on the circumstances and context and depending on the the verbal uh, atmosphere we're in. Trump unleashed things that were obviously there, but that uh, in other contexts would keep themselves in check. And he exap- exacerbated them and, and amplified them in ways that I don't think any other politician except maybe George Wallace uh, has done so explicitly at that level, national level. So, I don't know. It's a long way of saying I think it's too complicated for one cause to explain everything about Trump. Uh, One of the interesting uh, parts of your New Yorker article was the evolution of the Democratic Party because you're, you're saying that part of this story, and a very important part, is the Democratic Party's changing of its primary constituency from the working class to the meritocracy. Talk a little about that, because that, that's critical here, because there, there's so many pieces to this yeah. puzzle, and this is a truly important one. I tried to tell a very simplified version of the story of how, beginning in the late 60s, really you can pinpoint it, the 68 Democratic Convention, which was a, a riot, um, forced changes in the party that diminished the power of the old brokers who were the big city mayors, the union leaders, kind of the New Deal Democratic coalition, and forced the party to democratize its uh, selection process for president and its selection process for delegates so that uh, minority groups struggling for equal rights, uh, 
single-cause activists who were either anti-war, pro-environment, etc., what became known as the new politics. Younger, better educated, not attached to these old institutions like unions. Uh, that first emerged as a force in 72. It helped get George McGovern nominated. Bill Clinton was a McGovern uh, worker in Texas with uh, his girlfriend from Yale Law School, Hillary. And they were classic cases of uh, young boomers who uh, came out of, especially Bill Clinton, out of an atmosphere that was more like the New Deal coalition, but were headed in a different direction, which was the direction of uh, sort of a politics tinged with idealism, but also without f- much feel for uh, the issue of class and of economic injustice and of kind of the haves and have-nots. That's not the way Bill Clinton, I think, saw politics. And Gary Hart was a uh, campaign manager for, for George McGovern, and Hart was the first one to really take this new politics to the presidential level in 84. Bill Clinton was the first to become president with it. By the 90s, the Democrats, although they still talked the talk of unions and of uh, economic justice, were really the party of the educated uh, and of minorities. And um, Bill Clinton embraced globalization with both arms. He saw it as the answer. He gave a speech at a White House conference on the new economy. Remember the new economy? Mm -hmm. Everything was going to be solved by, we've repealed the business cycle. It's just growth, 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 because we have deregulation plus technology plus education plus breaking down barriers between countries. It is going to be nonstop growth. And he said that the Internet would be the greatest engine for reducing poverty the world had ever seen, which today looks mad. That was the atmosphere around... So that that style of Democrat took over the party in the 90s. And Barack Obama, I would say, is a creature of that, uh, who uh, came out of the same meritocratic race that Bill Clinton did. So what that meant was the, the connection to working-class Americans who were no longer organized in unions so much and who were... Uh, turning to a, a more resentful politics because of a sense that they were being left behind. The Democrats really no longer had that connection. They talked it, but they didn't have it. But we didn't quite see it starkly until 2016 when it decided the election. And, and what this transcension, uh, trans, trans, sorry, sorry, transition leads to is a... Uh, lack of realization when we come to Hillary's campaign that you could have many policies, propose many policies that address the problems we're confronting, but in a way, people weren't listening, weren't interested. Even when a policy was passed, they didn't realize that they were benefiting from it. And what replaced policy was identity. I got to interview her a month before the election last year. At that moment, it seemed like she was headed for victory. Um, and I was asking her a bunch of questions that were all around the, the fundamental question of how did the Democrats lose these voters? 
Why are they all for your opponent? And how can you get them back? And how can you help them? And she had a lot of answers. Um, she talked about corporate responsibility and profit sharing and um, getting corporate corporations to think more in the long term and more about jobs and less about the quarterly uh, earnings. She talked about breaking up monopolies. She talked about getting back to manufacturing in parts of the country where it had disappeared and how you could do that. She talked about, and she used the phrase, educational elitism. She was almost criticizing, I think, her own husband and herself for having moved the Democratic Party or being part of a move that really saw education as the answer to everything. She understood that that left out a lot of people who were never going to get a graduate degree and never going to be um, symbolic analysts in, in, that, in the new economy. She was thinking about that. But they were all these small-bore policy ideas. And I thought, while I was listening to her, these all sound good. I really have barely heard any of this on the campaign. I'm sure you've said it, but it just didn't get through because the noise is too loud. And it's not going to help you on Election Day. It's not going to uh, get the voters who are the objects of these ideas to vote for you because that's not why they are voting the way they vote. And interestingly, as you look <clears throat> at this uh, embrace of globalization, the abandonment of the working class, the, uh, the emphasis on diversity and responding to individual constituencies and, and their right to realize their identity, that uh, on the one hand, Trump then becomes a response in a f weird kind of way to what the forces that uh, the Democratic Party was unintentionally setting in place. So, so as you focus on discrete identities, it opens up uh, the, yeah. the, the identification of the working class with the white working class. Yeah, exactly. Because although my conversation with Hillary Clinton was about the working class and jobs and policies, her campaign was an identity politics campaign in the sense that she was really speaking to a lot of different identity groups and saying, I've got your back, I've got your back, and hoping that the sum of them all, uh, including her own identity group, educated professionals, would be enough to get her over the top, rather than a, a, a truly compelling vision that rose above them. I mean, she said stronger together, that was her slogan, but it, it felt like an empty slogan. What Republicans used to do in response to that is to say, we Republicans stand for uh, you know, a transcendent American vision. We're, we're not going to divide you up into these groups, which of course they were doing because they were locking out groups from their share of, of the, the pie. But they were speaking to, to a kind of universal identity. That's not what Trump did. Trump didn't talk the Reagan talk of the city on the hill. Trump made it clear that he was there for you, white, Christian, largely small town, rural, um, heartland Americans. They became a big identity group, among others, and they became... 
the focus of Trump. Remember, I love the poorly educated. That's because they were his biggest supporters. And he didn't say the white poorly educated, but everyone understood what he was saying. So Trump beat Hillary by creating a bigger identity group than the ones that supported Hillary. The, the election, and now if you watch the news, you, you uh, and, and I should say again that in a way your, your book <laughs> helped us understand the context that was pushing all of this along. But one has a sense that the country is breaking apart basically, or at, at a minimum, there are two worlds that don't talk to each other and have their own media. Yesterday in your lecture, you, you identified four different narratives uh, mm-hmm. of the way people are telling their story and trying to retell the story of America and point to the future for America. Mm-hmm. Briefly recount the, the four groups, mm-hmm. uh, narratives that you see. And you could easily come up with others. Yeah. Uh, these are the four that I think are the, the strongest. And they're sort of uh, something I saw in my reporting for The Unwinding was that although the left-right division is very real and deep, it's a giant Marianas Trench across which no one can travel, and the two sides are in these mutually incomprehensible hostile camps. That is all true. If you watch Fox News all day long, you will be saturated with a worldview that is impenetrable to, to me. Uh, and you will not have, you know, be able to listen to me, and I won't be able to listen to you, and that's where we are. And social media, Twitter and Facebook have utterly uh, intensified that and made it sort of tailored to the person. But... In addition to left, right, red, blue, we have up and down. So if there are these the four narratives that I talked about, they are up and down narratives. The, the up narrative on the right is libertarian America, which is the Koch brothers narrative. The up narrative on the left is cosmopolitan America. It's the narrative of globalization and tolerance and openness and the flow of people and goods and information, um, which is the Clintons, um, America. The down narrative on the right is America first. It's Trump. And the down narrative on the left is diverse America. It's groups that have been historically oppressed that are now saying we, we demand our share. And in the lecture, I discussed how I think that uh, just and necessary goal can easily become an end in it. The, the, the identity as a, as a category for getting equal rights becomes an end in itself and almost becomes a form of separatism, which is where diverse America, our identity politics, is going, especially in cultural institutions like universities and like media, um, foundations, uh, even elementary schools. I see it in my own kids' education. So that none of those groups speaks to the whole country. All of them have winners and losers in their story. And they are all um, entrenched in a, in a, a, a sort of a zero-sum battle for power that uh, may be inevitable. You know, politics is a struggle for power, but... They don't speak to us as citizens, and they don't 
find a way of 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 being truly inclusive. So that I think that's it's just a, a way of looking at how truly tribal our politics have become, where we cannot understand each other, we see each other as illegitimate <clears throat> in some ways. To even speak to someone from a different tribe is to give them a legitimacy they don't deserve. And each tribe hopes and thinks the other will somehow disappear, either by being beaten in the polls or by dying off, <laughs> by being walled off. Um, it's as if they can't acknowledge that the country is made up of more than their own tribe. Uh, what sort of leadership, what sort of ideas should we be looking for to take us over these humps? Because it, it really, your, your description is so powerful of what's going on that it, it, it almost seems impossible to bring us together again, to use a, a hackneyed phrase from the past. Uh, yeah. is, it, is it this idea that you talked about yesterday of citizenship and civic education and maybe at the local level and not in national leadership? I think local politics is much more hopeful because it's not as it's just not as poisoned as national politics. It's not as paralyzed and dysfunctional as Congress, um, and people have to look at each other and deal with each other. They're talking about issues that they have in common, like the air they breathe. It's kind of hard to. Yes, we can politicize the air we breathe, but uh, in the end. You better have a solution or you're not going to get reelected. You know, citizenship is both, to me, the most inclusive category and also a kind of empty category in that it doesn't have a, a political content. It doesn't have ideas. It's a, more a, a kind of an activity, but it's an activity that we've lost. It may be coming back. I mean, there's a lot of stirrings of civic activism. Um, both on the right and the left. The Tea Party was a big one on the right. It was kind of nihilistic and it burned itself out. The reaction to Trump is now um, showing lots of life and showing you know, a, a citizenry that actually is quite alert and awake and wants to um, get involved in public life. There's a lot of candidates for local office on the Democratic side that would not have shown up two years ago or four years ago. But meanwhile, the Democratic Party lost a 1,000 offices during the Obama years and became a hollow structure without any real organic connection to their own base and their own voters. So that, you know, that's part of this institutional collapse that I'm t I was talking about in my book. Um, I don't think a single leader is going to do it. These are deep, fundamental disagreements of value. And there's no real papering them over with inspiring rhetoric. I do think Barack Obama tried. This was uh, what his presidency was about. It's about uniting us. And in the last year of his presidency, he gave a series of speeches that never got much attention because the campaign was so loud, but that were like a last farewell testament of what democracy is about. 
So it's worth looking at those speeches because he talks about empathy, about listening to people who are not like you, who you disagree with. You may not ever agree with them, but you have to listen to them. He talks about reason and about um, facts and um, about the long term and things not happening overnight. Lots of, to me, you know, kind of the garden variety democratic values. And he's, he was trying to to reaffirm them when he had a chance before he had to say goodbye. And right now it looks, yeah, those things seem weak and, and almost namby-pamby compared to what we're up against with the current president. But we shouldn't lose sight of them because without them, especially that ability to actually, it's a very painful thing to get outside yourself and listen to someone who you deeply disagree with and maybe deeply dislike. But right now it's almost considered immoral to do that on both sides, on all sides. You know, evangelical Christians may think it's immoral to even listen to someone who's pro-choice. But we... Yeah, it's it's a perilous thing to stop that because it you know, the, a democracy needs citizens above all. Obama was uh, articulating in a way a, a philosophical statement. Uh, there is the problem which you've identified and others have identified that when you do something good for people, good in the sense of mm-hmm. addressing their problems. They don't realize it. it. It doesn't enter their consciousness in terms of changing their identity. And and partly this is the result of a lack of political education. It's also of what technology has done to the media and and to the way things are reported. Yes. And you've written a lot on, on the sort of negative impacts of technology. Yeah, I mean, I'm a bit of a technophobe, I suppose. I had a visceral feeling that when I first got to know Twitter that this was not going to empower all of us to be more active citizens. It was going to become an addiction and uh, probably eventually a fairly destructive addiction. And right now, Twitter seems to me like a pretty negative force in our politics and Facebook, too. Um, I didn't see the ways in which ideologues and Russians were going to use them to try to create divisions or exacerbate divisions. But that's a, an incredible new thing in our politics that the Russians understood first. They were already mm-hmm. there. And mm-hmm. they looked at us and at Poland and Hungary and France and, and Catalonia and said, we know how to, mm-hmm. to really turn you against each other, to make the very idea that there might be truth uh, kind of in doubt to just destabilize everything. It's not going to build anything new. It's just totally destructive, but we know how to do it. And Facebook and Twitter turned out to be ideal platforms for that kind of nihilistic um, activity. And we Americans turned out to be perfect marks for it. And, man, those those fake news stories were genius. They, they were targeted at particular communities They were sort of in this devilish way of how could I really freak out some white Christians in small towns outside Detroit? Uh, Well, maybe if I create a fake group that is militantly anti-Islamophobia, they might think uh, they're coming, they're they're taking over. It worked. 
we were, our, you know, it wouldn't have worked if our democracy had not been so fragile, but we had reached a point where we were kind of prey to this, and uh, I don't know how you undo that. It's interesting that the intelligence services <clears throat> didn't identify this problem until it was too late in the game as far as the election was concerned. And um, unfortunately, the Obama administration did identify it and didn't do anything about it until it was too late because in his fair-minded and mm -hmm. above-it-all way, he didn't want to seem to be taking sides. Um, of course, he endorsed and campaigned for Hillary, but he didn't want to be using intelligence and the National Security Council to indict her opponent, Donald Trump, for colluding uh, with with Russians, and yet they knew he was. So that that's on Obama. I bet Hillary will never forgive him for that. Uh, one <clears throat> final question. Uh, your descriptive analysis, in, in, in because of its objectivity and because of your perceptive eye and ear for hearing what's going on, doesn't have a lot of hope <laughs> for the reader. Uh, uh, it, it may appear to be more pessimistic than you are. What are, mm. the, what are the threads of hope that you see? I mean, they're very hard to find right now. Mm -hmm. uh, when I look at the humiliation of America as a force for good in the world, as a leader in the eyes of our allies, uh, when I look at the disgraceful behavior at the highest levels in our government, when I look at corruption becoming, I mean, it's like people don't even have the bandwidth to think about how much corruption is happening in a daily way between the Trump organization and the Trump administration uh, or the Kushner organization. Um, it's pretty hard to say, yeah, well, if only we we got rid of this guy because I think it's much bigger and deeper and more long-lasting than Trump. It's about a, a weakening of our faith in democracy and Trump has exploited that pretty brilliantly. I think the only answer is to try to combat it in one's own life and in one's uh, activities and in what you do and support and it's not going to succeed overnight. The Democrats may not take back Congress next year. They probably won't. It, they can't lose heart because of that, because this is a long struggle. And it's not just about Democrats retaking Congress. It's about solving problems that will win back the trust of voters whose trust they've lost. Um, it's very hard <laughs> to sustain very much optimism. I don't have a choice. I have children. I mean, this is the country that they're growing up in, and um, I can't let them give up on it. Well, on that note, uh, George, I want to thank you for coming back on our program and keep the books and articles coming. Thanks for having uh, me. Because that's a step toward our understanding what's going on. That's my small contribution. Thank, thank you, you very much. Thanks, Harry. And thank you very much for joining us for this conversation with history. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.